you've ever seen the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the old, the original, the real one with Gene Wilder, not the newer one. There's a place in that movie where the kids are just about to enter in to, uh, to have all their wildest dreams fulfilled. But before they can go in, Willy Wonka pulls back a curtain to reveal a written contract that all of the kids must sign before they're allowed to go in. It's written on the wall. And the parents begin to protest, partly because a lot of the words in the contract are so small you can't even read them. They don't even know what they're signing. But the kids will not be deterred. They all rush up to sign their name. Nothing's going to stop them now from going in and experiencing what's inside. You know, I wonder how many contracts and clauses and agreements we have agreed to without reading them. Is it possible that Apple owns all of us and all of our property uh, at this point? Because when the user agreement pops up, you, you don't read that. Nobody reads it. I'm sure if you read it, good for you. I know what I do. Yes, stop bothering me. I agree. Right? I have no idea what they're asking of me or demanding from me. Well, as we walk through the book of Exodus, we've seen to this point such wonderful narrative concerning God's love for his enslaved people. Israel enslaved under the evil reign of Pharaoh in Egypt, and God rescues them out through many signs and wonders. He brings them to himself on eagles' wings, God says. That's the measure of grace that he's given them to save them. But we've come now to a very decisive moment. Having been saved, having been rescued, now God delivers the terms of his covenant to his people. What does it mean to obey him so that they might walk with him and be his people? Last week we saw it. He gives them the Ten Commandments. One of the most critical moments in all of human history is the giving of God's law to his covenant people, Israel. And to Israel's credit, both before the giving of the law and after, they give the very best of their intentions. They say out loud, all together as a nation, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They affirm their commitment to obey the Lord, his voice, and to keep his covenant. But y'all, as we keep reading beyond Exodus 20, we realize that the Lord does not limit his commands to only the Big Ten. There are dozens more to follow, beginning in Exodus 21. And then if you read into Leviticus and then Numbers and Deuteronomy, oh my goodness, the commands grow into the hundreds. And these commands are wide-ranging. They range from laws against kidnapping and assault to laws about diet and, and rashes on the skin. There are laws about how to properly worship God and make sacrifices. And there are also laws about how to settle disputes over livestock. All sorts of commands God gives his people, hundreds of them that we see right here in the Bible. The question is, and the question I, I promised we'd touch on when we preached last week. Now that we are Christians, trusting and following Jesus, how do we read the Old Testament law, and how do we understand it and apply it? This is what we call the Mosaic law, which God delivered to and through Moses, including the Ten Commandments. Are we expected to keep these commands still today as those who know Jesus Christ by faith? This is a big question, and it's a fairly dense question. I'm going to warn you all up front. I hope you brought your knife and fork this, this morning with you, okay? We're going to dig in. 
But my hope is to very simply help us to understand how we, un, how we read and apply the Old Testament. And, and, and we can't possibly touch it all today, but we're going to do, I hope, justice to the question today. And y'all, to help us think through it, I want to actually go back to one of the Ten Commandments, something we read last week. It's from Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8. Look at this specific command again here with me. Exodus 20, verse 8. God says to his people, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now not long after this, the Lord repeats this very same command. It's in Exodus chapter 23. Verse 12, God says, six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, may refresh themselves. And y'all, that, that little sampling of two, two of the same command right there, I want you to know that between Exodus and Deuteronomy, the command of the Sabbath comes up more than 40 times in the law of Moses. And we just read it, that God, God commands the Sabbath, tying it into his own divine work of creation, making the world in six days and then resting on the seventh. And so we can't take the Sabbath command as some sort of obscure, off-in-the-corner kind of law. This is a big one, one of the bigger ones that we read in the law of God. But I'm willing to bet that you don't keep the Sabbath, at least not as it's prescribed right here in the Bible, and neither do I. Shouldn't we, though? I mean, are we okay with saying nine of the Big Ten we're down with, but this one right there, that one's optional? I mean, is that, where, where would we come up with, with a reasoning that would allow us to bypass what seems to be this all-important command? Well, y'all, this for us is a little test case today that I hope helps us answer the larger question about how we understand and apply the Mosaic law. So when we speak of the Sabbath, this is, if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the ministry of Jesus, one thing that, that comes up over and over again is the Sabbath. And in particular, it's, it's the people, the Jewish people, who are always angry with Jesus over the Sabbath. They're always um, accusing him of profaning the Sabbath day, usually because Jesus performed a lot of healings on that day, Saturday. And I believe in reading the scripture that he was doing that very intentionally, not by accident. He did it on purpose on the Sabbath day. See, the leaders considered anything, including healing, they considered that to be work. And therefore, they believed that Jesus was violating the law. He was breaking God's command. Well, Jesus, at every turn, was always pushing back against that accusation, not just because he disagreed with their interpretation, but because Jesus understood himself in a unique light. There's something he said in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says this concerning himself. 
He says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Meaning Jesus is the authority over the Sabbath day and the Sabbath law. When he says, I am Lord over the Sabbath, he is standing in the place of God right there. God who created and ordained that command, that day. Jesus is speaking as God. I'm Lord of this law, of this day, and of all that it represents. And y'all, this is especially powerful. What I just read from is Matthew 12, the early verses of that chapter. Right before that, at the end of Matthew 11, Jesus makes an astounding promise. The claim, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, is accompanied by a promise. When Jesus calls out to the crowd, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And it becomes very clear that the kind of rest Jesus is offering is not a once weekly religious observance. It's not an event. It's a new spiritual reality that only he provides, something he gives us when we come to him. This is upheld and expanded later on in the book of Hebrews. If you read Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that Christians enter into his rest when we come by faith to Jesus Christ. We receive a kind of rest that you can't put on the calendar. Later on in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians who are Gentiles. And y'all, that's us, non-Jewish people who have come to faith in Jesus. They did not grow up keeping the Old Testament law. Chances are they didn't even know about it. They didn't keep the law, but now they've become Christians. Now they've trusted Jesus. And look at how Paul instructs these people. This is Colossians 2, verse 16. He says, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now here's what's happening. These Gentiles did not grow up under the Mosaic law. They didn't grow up keeping the rules as the Israelites did, meaning these Colossians, they didn't obey the dietary laws. They didn't celebrate the Passover. They didn't keep the Sabbath. But now that they've trusted in Jesus, there is a group of people who have tried to come in to say, listen, listen, if you really want to be a Christian, then you've got to go back now and start keeping all of Israel's commands. That's the only way to compute. That's the only way you can live as a Christian. We, we all, last fall, we studied Galatians. Almost the whole book of Galatians is answering back to that point right there. If you really want to be a Christian, you've got to go back to the law. And Paul's response to that is, no. Those commands and practices which belonged to the old covenant were merely shadows that were pointing to a greater substance, a greater fulfillment. And the substance, he says, belongs to Christ. So these laws in particular that come up in, in Colossians 2, 
I think what Paul is saying is that those commands belonged uniquely to God's people, the Jews, under the Mosaic Covenant, but they were all shadows or pointers to something greater that had yet to be revealed, a new covenant, which would be not just for the Jews, but for all the world, both Jews and Gentiles. A new covenant brought about in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is the substance, the fulfillment of all that the law was pointing to. And so concerning the Sabbath, we read this in Romans chapter 14. Paul says, one person regards one day above another. Another person regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So for Christians under the new covenant, keeping the Sabbath is a matter of liberty, not obligation. It's no longer a command that we're obliged to keep, but a matter of liberty. If you want to keep it, praise God. Do it with all your heart. If you don't, praise God. Let each one be convinced in his own mind. Now, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the Sabbath, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. It simply points us, Paul especially, was constantly doing this, pointing us to the greater principle of what Jesus has done for us when he fulfilled the law. And this is one of the great points of the whole scripture, that human beings on our own cannot fulfill the law. We are not righteous. We are sinners. Someone had to come and take our place. Someone had to fulfill it on our behalf, and that's what Christ has come to do. Therefore, the substance belongs to him, not the shadow, the real thing. Our salvation is in Christ. And so this is how the Apostle Paul frames this throughout the course of his writings. I want to show us a few scriptures here that reinforce this point. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Romans chapter 10, Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so we might summarize it kind of like this. Y'all, the law of God reveals righteousness to us. It shows us what is truly right in God's eyes. And the law of God calls us to live righteously. We're supposed to obey it. But never did God give the law with the intention of making us righteous. The law was not given to make us right before him. The law can tell us what's right, but it cannot make us right. And therefore, we are justified, we're made right with God only through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the end of the law, meaning he is the goal. He's the fulfillment of the law for us. And so we don't look to the commands for our salvation. We look to Jesus. And therefore, as a new covenant Christian, Paul's words here, we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. 
Here's how Paul says it about himself personally. And of course, this applies to all of us. Philippians 3. I do not have a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Can I beat this horse for just one more second here? We are not saved by practicing the law, but by trusting in Christ. And he is the perfect fulfillment of God's law and all of God's promises. Everything finds its substance in Jesus. That's good news, right? Now, I want to give us something to chew on, though, okay? Let's pull back a layer here and ask another question, a related question. If we're no longer under the old covenant, but now we're under the new covenant, we're no longer under law, but we're under grace. Does that mean that God's law given in the Old Testament just kind of goes out the window now altogether? It'd make for an easier reading plan if we could all just skip the second half of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Oh my goodness, a lot of times that's where we bog down, right? Well, if it's all obsolete anyway, then why even bother? Is that the case? And the answer is no, that is not the case. Y'all, faith in Jesus does not nullify the goodness and the purpose of God's law. And something that that maybe would help us to understand this is what the Apostle Paul told his protege, Timothy. Paul said something about the Bible that's very precious to us, something we ought to take to heart for every issue of life. When Paul speaks of the Bible, and now remember, the, the New Testament is being written. It's not yet complete, as Paul writes. He's talking here about the Old Testament, what we call the Law and the Prophets. And here's what Paul says. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture, Paul says, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All scripture, including the law, of course. And so, y'all, even if we can sit here this morning and affirm what Paul says elsewhere, we're no longer under the law. We're not justified by it. Yet at the same time, the law is still of God. It originates in the heart and the mind and the wisdom of God. Therefore, the law is good. It's holy. It reflects God's nature and his heart and his holiness. And, Paul says, it's profitable to us for training in righteousness and for every good work. So it can't be obsolete. Therefore, we have to have some wisdom as to how we understand and apply it, right? So I want to give us, I'm going to give us two principles here this morning. And y'all, there's so much more to this conversation. You forgive me, I hope. But two helpful principles, I hope, that could guide us a little bit. All right? And here's, there's a pointer that gets us to the first principle, so, so let me just say this. If you open up the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, and you find a command given in the New Testament to the church, the commands of Jesus and Paul and John and Peter and so forth, we take those commands as binding upon us. They're given to the church in light of Christ, his death and resurrection. We don't trifle with those New Testament commands. Of course, we obey them. They're given to us. We're called to do them. But what about the older stuff? What about Exodus 
20, 21, 22. What about all that? How do we understand and are we called to obey those commands? Well, here's a great place to start. First principle. Does the New Testament speak to it? Take any command given under the Old Covenant. Does the New Testament speak to it? Because here's the truth, y'all. Many, a great many, of God's Old Testament commands are repeated and reaffirmed in the New Testament. Uh, Nine of the Ten Commandments are reaffirmed in the New Testament, for example, all except the Sabbath. Certainly, we're called by God to obey them. They're given to us all over again. Sometimes there are commands from the Old Covenant that are actually uh, expanded in the New. We, We mentioned this a little bit last week when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He reflects on some of the big commandments from of old. Uh, Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. But Jesus doesn't just reaffirm them. He actually expands. He shows us that those commands are not just a matter of outward behavior, but a matter of the heart. And he shows us the deeper issues of anger and hatred concerning murder, the deeper issue of lust concerning adultery. And so it's not enough, Jesus says, simply to say, well, I don't commit adultery. I don't murder. Jesus expands those commands to get us down to the heart of them. He actually raises the bar, in a sense, for us. He gets to the heart of them. So are those commands that we come to in Exodus, Leviticus, and so forth, are they ratified, reaffirmed, or expanded, or clarified in the New Testament? So often they are. Now, sometimes Old Covenant commands are nullified. They're done away with, indeed, when we come to the New Testament. So, for instance, all of those dietary laws that you read about in Leviticus as to what the Israelites could not eat, no pork, no shellfish, and so on. What do we do with those? Well, we turn, in this case, to Mark chapter 7, where Jesus made a stunning uh, declaration. He says in Mark 7 that it's not what enters into the body that... uh, that Uh, threatens your purity. It's what comes from the heart. What you eat is not a matter of purity. It's what you do. It's who you are. And thus, Mark says, Jesus declared all foods clean. All foods clean. And that's ratified again in the apostles. And so those regulations of dietary restriction, they no longer apply to us. What about when we read the sacrifices, all the commands of what kind of animals to bring to the altar and when and how to go about sacrificing them for the sake of sin? Well, we come in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews where we're told that Jesus Christ has offered himself once and for all as the true and great sacrifice so that we no longer shed the blood of animals in atonement for our sins because Christ has shed his own blood on our behalf. And his blood brings forgiveness, both now and forever. The regulation of sacrifice is done away with in Christ. And so this this, this first principle is simple, but it's all important. How does the New Testament illuminate for us the old? And it's simply a matter of being a student of the Scripture for us. Now, there's a second principle I mention, but this one requires a little more wisdom and care. It's not quite as clear in black and white as we might like it to be. 
This one requires more wisdom. And to see it, I want to I bring us back to the Sabbath, what we were talking about earlier. I think this would be a helpful um, way to navigate, is, is to look at the Sabbath. I, I hope we saw earlier, y'all, that God's command of the Sabbath day was not a law about practical time management. It wasn't God's way of simply dividing up the calendar for his people. No, God clearly designed the Sabbath to be for them a dedicated time of rest and refreshment and worship. The Sabbath was never designed to crush people. It was designed to bless them by orienting them around how life is meant to go. You're not supposed to work all the time. You're not supposed to to lose yourself in ambitions for gaining and accruing. You're supposed to rest and trust in God. So the Sabbath was designed for a lot of things, but one of the things is God forcing his people to regularly cease their working and their striving and to rest in the goodness and provision and worship of God. Wouldn't it be foolish then if we were to say, well, sure, but the Sabbath is no longer a binding law. It's no longer an obligation for me as a Christian, so I just don't even need to worry about it at all. In that case, we would, not, we would, we would perhaps see the letter of the law, but miss the spirit behind it. And here's where I would pray for me and for us that God's spirit would prevail over us. Y'all, the law of the Sabbath day from sundown Friday into Saturday, as the Jews practiced it in the Old Covenant. Okay, that regulation is no longer ours to keep. But what about the principle and the purpose of it? Is it not good and right for Christians to regularly and intentionally devote ourselves to worship, to setting aside all other distractions and ambitions and responsibilities that we might give ourselves fully to God. Is that not right? Is that not still good? In fact, y'all, because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we should actually have a greater desire to do this, not less. And if we think about it, y'all, the Sabbath day was given to Israel. I just mentioned this. It was the last day of the week. It was Saturday. But we don't worship on Saturdays, do we? No, we worship on Sundays. And if you've ever wondered why that is, why do we worship on Sundays? Because Sunday, the first day of the week, is when our Lord rose from the dead. And so the apostles began to call Sunday the Lord's Day. And this is the regular gathering of His people as we celebrate His resurrection. Y'all, in that sense, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. We don't dress like it always, and we don't cook like it necessarily, but every Sunday is Easter because every Sunday we gather as his people celebrating and living in the light of his resurrection. So we sing and we pray and we share in communion, we fellowship and we rest together in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Y'all, we gather to rest in Christ And so the Lord's day is not a new law. Remember, we are not under the law. We are under grace. But here's a place of conviction for me as I prepared this message. And I don't don't like to keep my conviction to myself. I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to heap it on you too, okay, this morning. 
Y'all, if Jesus really has forgiven my sins, if he has saved me by his grace, if Jesus has promised me eternal glory with him, does he deserve less of my time? My worship? My dedication? And devotion? Less? We may not keep the Sabbath day as a formal regulation, but the heart of God revealed in the Sabbath certainly hasn't changed. God's desire to call His people to Himself that they might rest in Him and experience His grace and worship Him and fellowship together as His people for His glory, that hasn't changed. And so I want to ask this of us today. Listen, in the absence of a hard rule, what should a life of worship and prayer and rest and devotion look like in light of all the grace we've been given? Should it look like less than what it used to be? Or should it be more? You know, sometimes people ask me, uh, do I have to tithe? Do I have to give 10% to the church the way Israel used to do? And I say no, and they say, whew. Um, I say, no, we don't, that, that law does not apply. But should we give less to God in light of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus? Are we looking to give less in that case? Or should we be compelled to be all the more generous? Y'all, not as a rule of what we give to the church. That's not the point at all. But it's the heart transformed by grace. If I really believe that Jesus has loved me and given himself for me, then my heart should be more inclined to him. And that's not a way of saying we should feel guilty. It's a way of entering into his blessing. The Sabbath was designed to bless. God's grace is always designed for our fruitfulness and our joy, never to crush us. And so however God should compel us to live a life of rest and worship, devotion, dedication, may we live it with all our hearts as we look to Jesus Christ. Y'all, all of this is such an important conversation because, let's, let's just be clear about this, the Christian life is a life of obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. There's no way around that, nor should we be looking for a way around it. But as we close, we have to recognize the very critical difference that defines and directs our obedience. We're coming, up, we're coming always back to this, y'all. Your obedience to God's commands is not the thing that makes you right before him. I feel like we say this every Sunday because we need to say it. We've got to hear it. The most natural thing in the world is for you and me to tie our behavior to our salvation. If I do what God commands, I'm in. If I fail to do what God commands, then I'm out. And it's as simple as that, right? Wouldn't that make it clear and easy? But y'all, if that's your approach to God, then you need to know that you are bound to the law. Bound to the law. Your righteousness depends on you. And I can give you no hope in that case. And the Bible doesn't either. But this brings us always back to the good news, the gospel. 
that we are justified, made right, by faith in Jesus Christ, not by the works of the law. His perfect obedience is what makes us righteous, not ours. His death on the cross is what grants us the forgiveness of our sins. His resurrection from the grave is what secures us for eternal life in him and with him. Y'all, we are not saved by our best behavior, but by trusting in Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. And so as we approach obedience as Christians, y'all, we have to so hammer this down and be crystal clear on it each and every day because we will forget, we will deviate, we have to listen. Our obedience to God is not us trying to earn a spiritual wage. Neither is our obedience us working off a spiritual debt. No, our obedience is a loving devotion, a heartfelt response to the God who has freely given us all things in Jesus Christ. We obey him truly because we love him. And we love him truly because he first loved us and showed us his love on the cross. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we reflect on uh, what I feel like is a challenging word, it is to me. Lord, help us not to lose sight this morning of what is deep down true. We may disagree or or even just just come to confusion about how to interpret and how to understand and how to apply some of the laws we see given to Israel, that's okay. Father, we, we, can, we can be confused a little, that's okay. But help us, Lord, not to be confused on where our righteousness is found, on what it is that makes us right before you. It is your son, Jesus Christ. Everything else is shadow. He is the substance. He is our Savior. And so, Father, this morning I pray for us that, Lord, we would have a a deep heart desiring obedience. We want to be obedient children to our loving Heavenly Father. And so, Lord, point us to what it is to obey. Lord, show us the Scriptures concerning uh, generosity and forgiveness and holiness and self-control and all the things, Lord, we're called to be. But Lord, those things are not our starting point. They are not our identity. They are not our righteousness. And I pray, Lord, we never mistake the two things. Our faith is in Christ, the perfect Savior, the perfect sacrifice. And so, Lord, let all of our worship be his, be directed at him, Let, Lord, all of our dependence fall on him, Lord. 
We're never looking to ourselves as if we had anything to show, Father, that would get us in. Lord, it's all Jesus. And Father, if if we believe this, then Lord, let it make us humble. Let it make us joyful and grateful and more obedient because we are obeying from a heart that is transformed by grace. We are obeying out of the fruit of your spirit in us and not out of our own power. Father, thank you that in Christ all these things are possible for us. We can be obedient children, but we must first be children of God. And we receive this gift by faith. And so let it be, we pray right now, in the awesome name of our Savior, as we receive him and worship him. Amen.